Hello everybody, this is our first sermon on our new series looking at the book of 1 Kings. Today we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 1, all of it, verses 1 to 53, and the title is Solomon Becomes King. What a mess. What an absolute mess. People are dying. Women are being exploited. The negligence of those in positions of responsibility leads others to suffer. Power is grabbed by arrogant men using armies and violence. What a mess. What an absolute mess. But what mess am I talking about? Am I talking about the advance of the Taliban through Afghanistan? Am I talking about the worst mass shooting in British history caused by an incel in Plymouth? Am I talking about the genocide of the Uyghurs in China? Am I talking about the political turmoil in Myanmar, Belarus or Russia? Am I talking about Boko Haram in Africa or the drug cartels in South America? In all of these situations, people are dying, women are being exploited, power is being grabbed... And those with the opportunity to do something about it are sitting around negligent. What a mess our world is in. What an absolute mess. Sadly, the mess that our world is in is nothing new. For the main situation I was describing now was the one found at the beginning of the book of 1 Kings. The year of that mess being 970 BC. Good King David is dying. We know that because verse 1 tells us that he can no longer keep warm. Even with blankets on, he is cold, a clear sign that he's on the way out. Death comes to us all, even the very best of us. And that hurts and frightens us, doesn't it? But as King David shivers on through his final days, something even more grievous is taking place. Women are being exploited. The beautiful Abishag gives us a face and a name so we can understand the abusive attitude that ran right throughout society. It is not right that a beautiful young virgin is separated from her family and put into bed with a king just to keep him warm. It is no justification at all in verse 4 where it says David had no sexual relations with her because the Hebrew of that verse implies that he would have done had he been able to. It was David's dying impotence that spared Abishag, not his moral fibre. And remember also that David had eight wives by this point, and probably others not named specifically in scripture. Why couldn't one of those get into bed with him, for goodness sake, and allow poor Abishag to be left well alone? Being no doubt using a beautiful young woman as a hot water bottle is out-and-out sin, The very sin that brought death careering into the world in the first place. But sadly that is not an end to the mess in Israel. Rather we have only just begun. On the whole David was a very good king. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. Still today we love to read his story and his psalms. He inspires us when we are struggling. But there was one thing that David was never very good at. And that was parenting. In fact, verse 6 gives an even more damning verdict than that. It describes David as a negligent parent. 
He simply failed to even try and give his sons the discipline they required while they were growing up. The problem David had was that many of his sons simply did not respect him. And those that did felt justified in behaving just like their father did. The frank truth of the matter is that once David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered so he could take her as his own, David's family fell apart. David's eldest son Amnon fell in love with his half-sister Tamar. When he realised he could not have her, he raped her and then sent her away. When David's third son, Absalom, who was also Tamar's brother, heard about this, he murdered Amnon before fleeing the kingdom. When Absalom did finally return to Israel, he tried to set himself up as king in David's place, for which he was in turn killed by David's men and thrown under a pile of rocks. Do you get the picture? Children copy the behaviour of their parents. What David did to Bathsheba and Uriah was done again and again in his own family. And David, probably from the realisation that he lacked any moral high ground whatsoever, repeatedly failed to do anything about it. He did not discipline his children. He did not rebuke them for their bad behaviour. In fact, he buried his head in the sand to such an extent as far as his children were concerned, he even failed to line up a successor to his throne. And it was this complete failure in fatherly duty that opened the way for the rest of the mess that we see in this chapter. As we saw with Dominic Raab's failure to make one phone call this week, the negligence of people in positions of responsibility leads to many others suffering. The writer of 1 Kings places the blame for the mess in Israel in 970 BC squarely at David's door. However, being honest about David's shortcomings does not, of course, excuse the terrible behaviour of Adonijah in this chapter. At first glance, Adonijah's actions seem quite understandable. He is David's fourth and oldest surviving son. He can see his father is on the way out and no plans have been put in place for an orderly succession. So Adonijah takes action. For the benefits of his country going forwards, he sets himself up as king. It is a proactive move to stop Israel falling into anarchy. It is a courageous, heroic, patriotic step. Or so it looks to many. But how wrong that is. Adonijah's actions in this chapter were nothing short of a calculated power grab. He was not interested in the benefit of the nation. He was interested in his own ends. He wanted the throne and all the gold and authority that came with it. How do we know this? Well, there's a very important clue in verse 10. When Adonijah carried out his own coronation ceremony, there were some very important people he deliberately did not invite. Nathan the prophet, the man he knew would speak God's truth. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, one of David's most loyal fighters and his own half-brother Solomon. A sure sign that deep down, Adonijah knew Solomon was the man God wanted to be king next. When we see that Adonijah deliberately avoided inviting these three, we can be sure that he knew what he was doing. Setting himself up as king was a cunning and divisive act. It was 
calculated for his own ends, and it relied on his own good looks and the military might of chariots and horses rather than the anointing hand of the sovereign God. So we say again, what a mess, what an absolute mess. Death, exploitation, negligence and power grabs. The same behaviour we see reaping disaster right around the world today. Will it always be like this? Is there any hope at all? Well, actually there is. There is hope to be found in the mess of our world. There are signs that it will not always be this way. But clearly that hope is not going to be dependent on the resources and behaviour of human beings, for we are what caused all this trouble in the first place. The only hope we have lies in the power of the sovereign God. Amongst all the mess of One Kings One, there are three glimmers of hope, and all of them tell us something wonderful about God. The first reason for hope that we find in this passage is that amongst all the mess, all the sin, all the turmoil, God still speaks. Even when human beings are deliberately acting against his wishes, ignoring his commands, God still speaks. And those with open ears and open hearts and minds hear him. The turnaround in this chapter occurs because the prophet Nathan remains open to the word of God. Let us remember that Nathan was a courageous man of God. When he heard God speak, he acted upon it. When King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband in the attempt to get away with it, it had been Nathan that had walked into the king's court and rebuked David to his face. No one else would dare challenge the behaviour of the king for fear of reprisal. But Nathan had the moral fortitude to pass on God's word. Eventually, it was through Nathan's challenge that David recognised his sin, confessed it, and started getting back on track with the Lord. Nathan then valued the word of God so highly that he was prepared to risk his own life to pass it on. Well, here again, it is Nathan that speaks for God and stirs David to action. He engineers a situation where David is confronted with by Bathsheba and David is forced to remember what God had said to him in the past. God had made it clear to David that Solomon was to be the next king. So much so in verses 29 and 30, we read that David had once sworn on oath to Bathsheba in the Lord's name that that would be the case. It appears that Nathan must have been privy to that occasion. He must have known what God had said to David about Solomon And as he saw a situation developing where God's plans were going to be ignored, Nathan heard God prompt him again to go and do something about it. This should be a great encouragement to us. No matter how bad a situation in the world is, God still has the power to speak a word into it. A word of challenge or advice, a word that when followed will bring transformation. So God still speaks. That is the first reason for hope. The second reason for hope in the mess of our world is that God still loves. As 1 Kings begins, it's important we remember the story of Solomon. Solomon was the second son born to David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba's first son died after only seven days. 
This was the son born from David's adultery. Now, we have to be very careful when declaring an infant's death as an act of God's judgment, for there are few things in life more painful than losing a child, and most child bereavements are nobody's fault at all. But the Bible does indicate that this particular death was a direct consequence of David's appalling behaviour. But once David had been rebuked by Nathan and confessed his sin, God did quickly forgive him. And as a result, he allowed David and Bathsheba to bear a second son, the son they named Solomon. But what is really interesting about Solomon is that he had another name as well, a name given him directly by God just after his birth. Listen to these words from 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. After the death of their first child, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Solomon's other name was Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. And when it said in those verses that the Lord loved Solomon, the Hebrew uses that very special word, hesed. The word that depicts God's loyal, committed, covenantal love, the love that will never fail or give up. And notice it was Nathan the prophet who passed on this name to Solomon. This is how he knew that Solomon was God's next chosen king. He'd known it right from his birth. What I would like us to take away from all this is the following. The Bible at times is very honest. As human beings, we do have to experience the consequences of our sin. David lost a son as an infant. He then lost two more as his sons copied his own bad behaviour. And all the mess and division of this chapter is David still experiencing the consequences of his negligent parenting. Sin always has consequences. God is an utterly just God, and this is the way he has made the world to be. Yet God still loves. The fact that Solomon is even present in this chapter shows the power of God's forgiveness. By God's grace, David had been allowed to go on as king. By God's grace, Nathan arrived just in time to stop make David making another huge mistake in allowing Adonijah to become the next king. And by God's grace, good will come from the mess in the land. God still loved David. Despite his weaknesses, God still loved Solomon, despite all the mistakes he'll go on to commit in the coming chapters. And of course, wider than that, God still loved his people Israel and through them was going to bring a saviour who would go on to rescue the whole world that God so loved. When we look at the mess in the world today, we are to hang on to the hope that despite all the sin, despite all the brokenness, God still loves it. And he still loves us. So God still speaks and God still loves. There is one more reason for hope in this chapter. When the world is in a mess, we need to remember that God still reigns. Better late than never, David responds to Nathan the prophet and the challenge from the word of God. To David's great credit, he uses the final ounces of his strength to ensure that Solomon does indeed succeed him as king. Once all has been put right, David rejoices with some telling words. Listen to this from verses 47 and 48. 
David bowed in worship on his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. Notice how David gives all the glory and all the credit to God. He knows that he deserves none of it for himself. It is God who has paved a way through the mess to get his appointed person on the throne. Way back in the early days of David's reign, God had made David a promise. He was going to build David a royal household. In fact, God told David that his chosen king would reign on his throne forever. By the beginning of 1 Kings, we can already see that that promise will only be fulfilled on God's terms. It will not be enabled by mere human design. Solomon was the king of God's choosing. He was not the oldest surviving son, as royal tradition dictates and still does in our country to this day. Solomon was the one God wanted. His presence on the throne would be a constant reminder of God's forgiveness of David and the mercy that God offers to all his people. When God wants something to be, he has the sovereign power to ensure that it happens. When God makes a promise, it is always kept. When God speaks his word, it always comes about. This chapter tells us that no matter how much sin there is in the world, no matter how big the mess we have made, ultimately God's purposes will be achieved. And that is all down to the fact that God still reigns. God is on the throne of heaven and earth. He is on the throne of history and nothing can stop him. Human sin, human negligence, human power grabbing may cause problems, big problems, but they will never finally thwart the King of Kings. I know that many of us will have been bewildered by the news stories I began this sermon by mentioning. How can we be anything other than upset when we see the suffering in Afghanistan, Plymouth, Xinjiang and other parts of the world? But I hope that now we've seen a situation in the Bible so similar, we have some reason for hope. The Bible tells us that God is still present in our messy world. In fact, it tells us he's still powerfully at work behind the scenes. We worship the God who has the power to mould even the sinful actions of human beings into his plans. Ultimately, of course, we see this in the life of Jesus, David's greatest son and the foremost king who succeeded him. Jesus came to bring God's presence into our messy world. Jesus came to redeem the mess that human beings had made for themselves. And when power-grabbing people crucified Jesus, God had the ability to turn that into the moment of salvation for us all. There is always hope when you know the Lord. There is always hope when you know that God still speaks, loves and reigns. There is always hope, even in the messiest parts of our world. Let me finish by just saying this. As Christians, we always have hope. But hope has to be lived out day by day. Can I encourage us all to leave this place to live a hopeful life? I love the way our chapter ended. Once Solomon had become king, he could have had his half-brother Adonijah killed for his treachery, but he didn't. Instead, he let him return home in peace. You see, when you truly know that God remains in control, when you have a hope strong enough to carry you through the mass of life, when you know you are truly loved by God, you can afford to show mercy to those who've made mistakes. 
even those who oppose you. God's sovereignty is what allows us to love our enemies. Living hopefully in our messy world means keeping our eyes fixed on God, waiting patiently for his purposes to come to be, and acting mercifully towards others rather than seeking our own ends while we wait. May the world see God's hope in us, in our words and our actions, this week.